Hi there, precious friends. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a portrait of love. And since God is love, it's a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants his children to look like Jesus. He wants us to be reprints of what he looks like, how he acts, how he thinks. He wants to reproduce his portrait in us. So as we look at these verses, we can ask the question, how's your love life? Get your Bible and let's talk about it. In our last session, we saw 1 Corinthians 13 as a breath of fresh air right in the middle of the first letter to the Corinthians. It is a beautiful gem in the setting of the whole letter. The power of it comes from its context. And in chapter 12, Paul talked about how God has given spiritual gifts to the church so that it can function. What is the purpose of spiritual gifts? It is to equip the body, to build up the body of Christ, to the maturity and the fullness of Christ, and to glorify God. So God has given gifts to the church, and in chapter 14, Paul explains how those gifts are properly used. And right between chapters 12 and 14, we have chapter 13. And he explains to us there that in the environment of church, these gifts are to be properly used. And, and he explains that there has to be the right motive and the right environment and the right atmosphere for him to have, for them to have any power. For them to have spiritual power, they have to be used the right way with the right attitude. So instead of accepting the gifts that God had given them, the Corinthians were coveting gifts. They were coveting gifts that other people had and they were prideful about certain gifts and they were selfish and boastful and jealous of each other. And in chapter 12 in verse 31, Paul says this, look guys, I'm gonna show you a more excellent way. There's a better way to do this. There's a way to do this with power. There's a better way than pride and coveting and lording over one another. That more excellent way is agape love. We've talked about it at length and we understand that it is God's love. It is a self-giving love. It is a love that will go to the cross for the sins of the world. It is not about serving self. Agape love is never about me. Agape love is always about God and always about others. And so we went on last time to look at verses one through three, where Paul clearly tells us that all the gifts of the spirit and all the activities of the church mean absolutely nothing and are totally useless, totally valueless without love. It's all noise and nothingness, he says. So no matter what, without love, none of it means a thing. Nothing. 
We may enjoy it. We may like it. We might be, might be like the Corinthians and find all kinds of activity in it. But God says, mm -mm. nope. If love is not at the center, if love is not the motive, then you are nothing. And what you do is nothing. So 1 Peter chapter 4 agrees because Peter says, above all things, have love. Love is the personification of the character of God. What does that look like in our lives? When I want to talk about loving others and loving God, and when I talk about how God loves me and how God wants to love me through others, what does that look like? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7 tell us. They tell us all of that. It's the most dis complete description of love that's ever been written. Now, it is a description of divine love. Remember, it is agape love. It is not phileo love. It is not eros love. This is God's love, agape love. And so these verses are, have 15 things that describe agape love. Now, as we read them in English, they look like adjectives. But if we could read them in the Greek, which I can't do, I try to study it a lot with the dictionaries that I have, but if we could read them in the Greek, which is the original language that this was written in, then we would see verbs. We wouldn't see adjectives, we would see verbs. And so understand, first of all, that agape love expresses itself in action. It expresses itself in our choices. It expresses our, itself in what we do. And so this is not a definition. The Bible doesn't ever define love except to say that God is love. What it gives us are descriptions, a comprehensive biblical description. And so this is a portrait. This is a portrait of what God's love is like and what it needs to look like in us as he reproduces himself in us. Love is a necessary reality. Love is something without which we are zero Nothing, what is nothing? Nothing is nothing. Nothing in the original language means nothing. So think in terms of the value of love from God's perspective. This kind of love is the prominent part of all Christian behavior. Christ has called all believers to conduct ourselves in this way. And he has empowered us to do that because he has given to us the Holy Spirit. So when he gives us himself, then he gives us all of his character. And in that person of the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer, we are able to do this. He will do this through us. Our job is to learn how to let him do that. So he will do this. And these are busy. They are action words and it is a necessity. So since love is the most essential thing in the church, then we're going to take the time to look at each one of these behaviors very carefully. So these are not things that are hard to understand, but I want to tell you they are things that are hard to apply. And studying this lesson and studying this chapter is very convicting for me. And I realize when I read some of these that I don't do that. I don't do it right. Don't do it enough. Don't do it completely. But what this is, when he gives us these 
behaviors. This is to be the lifestyle. It's to be the mindset. It is to be the way we tend to act, knowing that we're going to mess up on a daily basis. But every one of these principles is true of Christ. And so when we look at the Lord Jesus and we look at these characteristics of love, then we're going to see that he did them all, all the time. He is our model. He is our example in everything. So let's look at the first one. Beginning in verse four, um, he says, love is patient. Love is patient. Love, agape love, has the mindset of being patient. Now, the King James Bible says, love suffereth long. So you're going to see the word long-suffering, or you're going to see that mindset of suffering long. That's more of a verb form than being patient, isn't it? But this is about being long-suffering or long-tempered or patient with other people. This is the choice or the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again without becoming upset or angry. Mm, that's hard. That's hard. Love doesn't strike back. Love waits without murmuring waits without murmuring. So we're to be patient with those who make life for us, who make life hard for us. Ouch. I'm not good about doing that. So love sets my mind. So let's, let's look at our model for that. What does that look like? Well, our model certainly is God himself. Romans chapter two and verse four says, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance? Forbearance is a delay of punishment, okay? So he says, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So why is God waiting? Why doesn't God just smack somebody early on because he's being patient, waiting for us to repent? Second Peter chapter three and verse nine says, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God is patience. He sets the standard for patience. Well, what about Jesus on the cross? Um, after he had endured all, all that he had endured, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What about Stephen in Acts chapter 7? He's being crushed by stoning. And while he's being crushed by those heavy stones, he says, God, lay not this sin to their charge. No vengeance, no retaliation, no animosity. Can we even imagine what the church would be like today if everybody was like that? Can we even imagine what would happen in our congregations and in the church across the world if nobody ever sought revenge? Sometimes it's kind of covered up. You know the thought, well, I'll show her. And even we might do it while we're smiling. I'm going to show you. 
So I grit my teeth and I set my mind and you know, we'll say things like, see if they ever get anything else out of me. Those things are vengeful. They are not patient. They are not long suffering. Those things are not love, are they? Love can be wronged and not seek revenge. What do we do instead? We release it to the Lord. We have to really work to learn how to do that, don't we? The eternal God is eternally long-suffering. He is eternally patient. And since he is infinitely patient with us, his grateful, rebellious creatures, if he's going to be patient with folks like me, then how much more should his children be patient with one another? How much more should we be patient with those who are not his children? Understanding that they're lost and they're doing as well as they can do in the lost state. So that's what he's calling us to. We cannot exhaust the patience of God. And he calls us for that same patience to be revealed through us by the Holy Spirit. I am so grateful that God is patient. Aren't you? <laughs> if he were not, I would have been done and sacked a long time ago. God is eternally, lovingly patient. Think about Israel. Think about Israel, a rebellious nation. Can you think about all of the things that God called Israel to that he didn't do, that they didn't do? You know, they were disobedient and hard-hearted, unbelieving, disloyal people. And God just kept on with them. And God kept a plan for Israel. God today still has a plan for Israel. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times do we have to forgive? Seven times? And Peter thought he was being generous. Jesus said what? No. Seventy times seven, Peter. In other words, don't ever quit. Why? Because God never quits. God never quits. Love expresses the long-suffering of God even when it has been wronged. So that leads to the second attribute where he says in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. Love is kind. Love does not merely suffer long. It is kind. You know, we can just endure wrong and appear to be long-suffering while it could be gritting our teeth on the inside. So we're holding on to being long-suffering. We want to look patient, but love demands that long-suffering or patience and kindness go together. It's easier to be long-suffering without kindness. Do you ever get that? And so this kindness, though, this is an interesting word. This word in the original language for kindness is not talking about a sweet attitude. This is talking about useful, serviceable. It's, it's a word that can be translated either one of those ways. It is to be serving and gracious. It is doing kind, helpful things. Again, love is a verb. So this is going to have to be what I do and not just how I feel. All right. So it's doing kind, helpful things. It is doing useful deeds for someone else, 
even to those who have harmed us, hurt us, made us mad. Agape love gives to help somebody, even an enemy. Well, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he didn't say, feel sweet and good about them. He says, do useful, helpful things for them as you have opportunity. Sometimes that may be just, we don't say just praying for them. That's the most powerful thing we can do. But sometimes that's what it is. So remember that Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And these Corinthians were at each other's throat. And so he comes in here with chapter 13 and he says, look guys, love is patient and love is kind. In other words, you're going to have to look at what you're doing with these attitudes that are there. So then uh, a little bit ago, we read Romans chapter two and verse four, and it talks about the kindness of God toward us. And so over and over, God has done things to benefit his enemies. It rains on the just and the unjust. Now, this word translated kind, the Greek word is C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. Now, let me tell you what's interesting about that word. Now, you know that the Greek word is a very rich language. And sometimes when the translators translate our Bibles from the Greek, then we get all different kinds of words translating that one Greek word. Well, this word in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3 says, if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now that word translated gracious is C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. The same word that's translated kind in 1 Corinthians 13. So he says, have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? When the Lord is gracious, what does he do? He does good things for us. He reaches out to us. He does useful things. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, I love this when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my yoke is easy. That word easy in the original language, C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S, same word. Easy in the Greek is the same word translated kind in 1 Corinthians 13. So here you've got kind, gracious, and easy all being translated into English from the same Greek word. So our thoughts should be something like, um, what can I do that would be useful and helpful? For that person. What does that person need the most? Do they need prayer the most? Do they just need somebody to speak to them? What would be helpful and meaningful? And if you'll ask the Lord, he'll show you. He'll show you. He'll give you an idea. He'll give you an opportunity. So when somebody has irritated me, how can I repay their that anger or that hurt with something useful and good that they need? What about road rage? What about if somebody is angry with you on the road and uh, 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 what they want to do is just get in and get in front of you? Let them. Let them. You know what you've done? You've blessed them. You have been kind to them. You have, sh you have shown God's love, whether they know it and recognize it or not. That's God's deal. Okay. So we respond to these things by asking, Lord, what, what do you want me to do here? What is gracious and kind that I can do here? Now, there's some questions 
that I just have to ask here before the Lord as I think through this, because once I get through patience and kindness, I am done and I see my sin. So what do we do? We ask, we ask ourselves questions before the Lord. And so one of the first things that I have learned about me and a question that I need to ask, and maybe you do too, is when am I most likely to be impatient? What are my most vulnerable times for being impatient? Well, for me, it's going to be when I'm tired or too busy. And so I have to ask that question. And so he gives us this to help us overcome it. So I know when I am really tired or when I am really busy, I'm vulnerable to being impatient. And I have to put up a guard in my mind to think differently about that. Another question is, have my motives for enduring wrong always been pure? Nope, mine haven't. Um, was I ever kind to somebody who wronged me just to make them feel badly? Did you ever do that? Just be kind to them. You know that, you know, it's a misinterpretation of the verse, but what we're trying to do is heap coals on their heads by being kind. What's the matter with that attitude? God says, I don't, God doesn't have that attitude. He's not doing that. You know, kindness. Does our world not need more kindness? Just kindness. Goodness. Walk through a great superstore of some kind and watch parents with their kids. Or wives with their husbands or husbands with their wives. Friends together. You know, are you kind to them? Do your children see you as a kind person? Are you kind to your children, even when they spill their milk in the middle of supper? Do your children sense a safe tenderness toward you? Kindness. And sometimes, you know, in this world today, we will be with a waiter or a waitress that's just, well, we don't know what they're mad about. But sometimes kindness will overcome an attitude like that. And so God says, I'm looking for this in you. I'm looking for kindness. Um, can you ever recall a time in your life when God's patience with you was obvious? I can. What are the things that you've done in your life, maybe that went on and on, and God was patient? And his reason for being patient and kind was what? To bring you to repentance. To bring you to repentance. Number three, love does not envy. This says love is not jealous. So love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. The King James says love envieth not. Envy and jealousy are the same thing. Where love is absent, there's going to be jealousy. There's going to be envy. There are two basic forms of jealousy. One is I want what somebody else has. Two is I don't want them to have what they have. You ever see that? You ever see that in your world? Envy and jealousy can easily, easily, easily creep into a Christian's life. And some of this I worry about for me and for a lot of us because sometimes it's crept in and it's been there so long I don't even recognize it anymore. And so we have to understand how easily 
envy and jealousy creep in and destroy us because jealousy will do horrible things to our hearts. Um, there are many biblical illustrations of envy. Eve was jealous of God. Remember what Satan said to her? He said, if you eat of that tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's got something on you. And so she's jealous of what God's got. She wants it and sins. So Eve was jealous of God. Cain murdered Abel because of jealousy. That's just in Genesis 4, early on in the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because of jealousy. The prodigal son's older brother in the New Testament was jealous. Solomon uncovered jealousy in a woman who pretended to be a child's mother. You remember that story? Uh, and she would rather have had that baby cut in half and killed than for the true mother to have him. That's in 1 Kings chapter 3. Jealousy. Envy. Jealousy is not a harmless sin. It hides. It crouches at the door of our hearts. And James says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Let me read it again. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. The Greek word that's translated envy or jealousy means to boil, to seethe. Do you ever see a boiling pot of water? Does that ever go on in your heart? And so that's the Greek word. It's this inner boiling. It's this inner seething. It's steaming over what somebody else has. This can happen among groups of people. Um, I've been experiencing this lately in my life and in another job that I have. But where people are just seething and boiling over what another group of people has. And they want to destroy that group. You ever see that? This can happen in a church. It was going on in the church at Corinth where you're just seething because somebody else has something you don't have. And maybe you might not really want it, but you don't want them to have it. That's jealousy. That's envy. And God is saying love, God's love does not do that. Tell you another word here, covet. Covet and jealousy and envy, those things all go together. That word fits here. And, you know, what one of the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt not covet. Don't covet your neighbor's house or his wife, whatever. You know, but don't do it. So envy destroys the insides of a person. When we walk around that way too much, it's going to mess up our minds. And you know what? Satan works there. We give him an open door, not only to do that, but what did the scripture say? Every other evil thing. So he's got an inroad into our lives when we allow that to go on. Are you envious of somebody else's money or clothes or friends or children? I've seen parents envious of somebody else's children. Are you envious, envious of somebody else's position? <laughs> if you're an athlete, which I am not, 
But if you're an athlete, how hard is it to play second string? Do you ever wish that the player ahead of you would stumble, have to be out, get hurt? Do you ever wish the player ahead of you well? Do you wish for others to be unsuccessful? Are you possessive in an ungodly way of people in your life? Do you put people in bondage by trying to control them and lord over them and own them? If you see that in yourself, can you just ask the Lord for his help and just release them to God? Are you a jealous husband or wife? I've known of situations where husbands didn't want their wives to get out of the house. What is that? Fear. But it's also jealousy, ownership. God says, "Uh uh-uh. That's not love. That is not God's love. God's love is delighted when others succeed. It is generous. It is well-intentioned toward other people. This is hard stuff. And it's not easy to do. I don't know, but what 1 Corinthians 13, these, these behaviors are not some of the most convicting passages of Scripture. Because I read them and I realize how far, far short I fall of God's love. Because God does all of this for all of us every day. So what do I do when I'm feeling convicted? When I go, ah, I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I do envy. And I get before the Lord and I confess it. I agree with God that I'm struggling with that in my heart and life. And I ask him, how do we fix it? And I surrender to him and I ask him to let Jesus be Jesus in me. We'll never do this on our own. But he is there to do it through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. We'll start right there next time. God bless you.